You are now tuned into the Wake the Flock Up Network. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's your boy Concept. Want to let you guys know we sat with the legendary Eddie Bravo. That's right, Jiu-Jitsu master, podcaster, musician, and all-around coolest dude on the motherfucking planet. Eddie Bravo was here. Here's a little sneak peek of what you can expect. Come back November sixth. And you download the entire episode. Once again, the legendary Eddie Bravo. Doesn't matter. I'm not going to believe shit. It's like someone, like a whore. She f***ed everybody. Your neighborhood whore. F***ed everybody. And uh, you didn't know she f***ed uh, Luis, your boy. Yeah, you didn't think? But then someone, some guy goes, I hey, think she f***ed Luis too. <laughs> You'd probably believe her, right? Yeah, no doubt. Because she has that yeah. history behind Even if she did f*** Luis, it wouldn't matter. She's still a whore. Mm. Right? Yeah. It wouldn't matter. So same. Thing. It wouldn't be like ah, you. You thought she f- Luis. You thought you're yeah. crazy. Yeah. You're crazy for thinking she f- Luis. Mm. I told anybody can tell you. She, you know that she f- anybody. You'd believe it. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, she's f- whore. Yeah, that's what they It's do. not that hard to convince me. Yeah, yeah. You could fool me easily. <laughs> Don't forget, come back November six and download the entire episode only on wakethefluckup.net. Welcome back to the show. You are now listening to Wake the Flock Up with Concept 714. Very special Wake the Flock Up on location. Wake the Flock Up. Beautiful Malibu, California. The boo. You know what? Like I told you, I've never been to Malibu. Now, you know, uh, Orange County, born and raised. I don't think I've ever made it out here before. It's really nice. It's a nice neighborhood. And today is absolutely gorgeous. It's full of some very interesting people, for sure. You got to get a mixture of all kinds, especially like uh, the last 10 years, right? How everybody's just getting rich off of different things. Yeah, you get... um, it's It's a weird mix of surf culture celebrity culture and just looky-loo culture so some people move out here just because it's malibu yeah. and then they'd get sick of it because it really is a small town vibe yeah um, my thing is is like i've spent the majority of my life in san diego and so the neighborhood that i'm from is let's just say it's not as nice as this um <laughs> but uh when i moved um back up to los angeles because of the music business um, for me, I just wanted to get close to the ocean, and Malibu was. But the SD is nice too. SD is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah I do yeah. some business out there in SD sometimes, the, and the beach I that I'm Detroit. from in uh, in San Diego, Mission Beach, is kind of like the Venice yeah. of um, San Diego. Okay. So when I first moved up here, I lived in Venice for a while. Yeah. But as Venice, um, sort of like the tech culture, moved in. Um, that's when I moved right. out. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get into it. So before we do, let me introduce my guest. I got Kevin Zinger here today with us. The reason that I wanted to sit with uh, with Kevin with you is because, um, so at, when I started, I was an MC, right? First I was a fan and I loved it. And then I, I got into an MC. I was an MC and rocking shows and all that stuff. So you're very limited to like your view of how many people are actually involved in the industry, right? Like in the music industry period. Mm. And in hip hop in particular, it seems very accessible to be a promoter. 
or to be an MC or to be blank, right? Mm. But to be one of these people that is genuinely fabricating, and I mean that in a good way, like and actually putting out this product in kind of like a tastemaker for an entire generation, right? Mm. That's got to be. Does that weigh heavy on you at all? Um. Yeah. Look, when I, I mean, when I first got into the music business, I was. 18 years old and I started off just being a promoter um, and I would take everything from hip hop shows to punk shows and do them in my local neighborhood. Right. Um, And, you know, things progressed from managing bands to owning labels, et cetera, et cetera. But to answer the question, um, you know, over a course of the last 20 plus years of doing this, um, you know, you have people's lives in your hands. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're yeah. you're responsible for um, helping their career along. And if they put faith into you, you've got to put the effort into them, right? So I've always prided myself on just, you know, like, look, in the music business, people make a lot of false promises, right? And it's, it's one of those businesses of over-promise, under-deliver, right? Yeah, but my thing is, is like, I make no promises. All I do is say to somebody, I will work 12 hours a day and do everything that I can to make sure that your career goes forward, right? Because nobody can nobody can tell you you're, they're going to make you a star. Nobody can tell you they're going to make you. Well, they can the, tell you that. They could tell you that, but they can't tell you that with um, any realness. Certainty, yeah, right? that's right. Like all you can do, look, like, at the end of the day, the fans and the consumer dictate how the music does, right? Um, so, like, as a manager or a label owner, like, I can do my job and get the press looks and I can get the placement on Spotify or iTunes or whatever it is and I can make all those things happen, but I can't make somebody buy your record. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I pride myself and I think our whole team does pride ourselves on just being extremely real with people and, and setting up real goals and real um, sort of benchmarks for people's careers and just get digging in and doing the work. Okay. And I'm with you on that and I respect it, but here's the thing. So what I'm, what I'm, what I want to know from you directly, right? Okay. That would make sense if it was like, Oh, it's one one artist you've done it for, or two artists, right? But you've done this for multiple artists. So there's there's something in you that recognizes the timing, the talent, the balance of all those things to make a successful group and to put them out to the world, right? You've done that many times over and over again. What is it about you, do you think, is that you're able to recognize when that timing is? I mean, for me, it's like I've I've my career has always been working with music that I love, right? And being somebody who was sort of born and raised in Southern California and listening to hip hop, punk rock, and anything that was kind of like street music, I think I have a good ear for that. Um, you know, through my career, like, you know, everything from working from the early days to now, it, it, I've never chased like some pop hit or tried mm-hmm. to do anything that was sort of like out of my wheelhouse because um, I just don't know that world. Right. And I, you know, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't know how to, um, not that I wouldn't know how to, but it's just my passion doesn't lie in that. Right. right. My passion lies in the music that I like. Right. So being able to, 
find talent and bring it to life and expose it to people is a blessing, right? And, you know, I work 12-hour days and I sit in there and I grind it out and I figure it out. And I've been fortunate enough to create, um, you know, multiple businesses and platforms to be able to help artists out. And, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's just making sure that your heart is in the project, right? Right, right. Let me ask you, uh, let's go back a little bit. So you you started at 18, very young, you found success mm. in this. And I am a firm believer that when you find what life puts you here to do, life will facilitate things for you eventually, right? Not that they're not going to be difficult and they're not going to take a lot of work. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying they, life will kind of open doors that you might not recognize at the time, right? But because you'll continue working, those doors will be accessible to you, right? Mm. I firmly believe that because that's the only trajectory that I've seen. No, that's right. And it works for me yeah. to, because like, you know, um, so the other, the, I can only look through eyes of an MC, right? That's the only thing I can look at as a fan and all that stuff. So when we look at the music industry, I'm looking at it through the eyes of an MC, right? So as an MC, it was fairly difficult to get put on the shows that i wanted to get put on on like mm -hmm. the shows that i i thought at the moment i deserved to be on right and it wasn't until i realized and i said maybe this is not what life wants me to do that i said okay well let me take a look back and then and i how else can i contribute to hip-hop to the music scene in general and, and you know it's hard to get interviews proper interviews to get real true in-depth interviews I, I couldn't find anyone to do it right so i said i'm gonna do it and five years ago now in October 15th coming up, we've been, I've been doing this show for five years, right? That's great. And the one thing that I've, that I saw the difference between the path of just being a rapper and then being media and kind of contributing in that form was the, how, how easy it was to get success to the next step. Mm. So then I, I thought about it. I'm like, well, maybe life didn't want me to be a rapper, you know, but it still wanted me to contribute and, and my passion is here. So how can I, so then when I realized, oh, okay, this is what life is, then when I realized, well, you know what? I accidentally run into Raka at a at the Viper show. That's life facilitating things. Or I run into blank. That's life facilitating things too. Do you think, am I right or am I, am I off no, course? No, you're 100% right. Because I think once you realize your passion, life goes, yeah, this is the right path. So it's less complicated, less twists and turns, right? That's right. You're still going to walk it. It's yeah. still going to be hard. Yeah. But at the end of the day, this is what life intended you to do, which is why I think you found success so early on. 18, you're a kid and you're being thrown all these opportunities, right? But you're smart enough to realize they are opportunities and to take them. So do you think it's like a... a, a, a a combination of things or was it were you walking already a path as a teenager to, to get you there at 18 um no i mean i think for me like i mean you know when i was 18 years old you're talking about 1991 so it was like pre-internet pre um you know the music business or at least the recorded music business sort of collapsing on itself right but um for me it was like i was so entrenched in um southern california culture like you know i started going to shows when i was 13 14 years old and when i was younger right like everything was very sort of like segmented right so you were like you were either the hip-hop kid or you were the punk rock kid or you were the rock kid or you were and for me like i liked everything right so when i got when i started promoting shows when i ate when i was 18 and my management business later and the label business later 
it that sort of reflects who I am as a human being, right? Because hip hop will always sort of be the base of what I do, but like, you know, I've branched out and done multiple different genres. And as long as the music has that sort of root street feel to it, then it like appeals to who I am. But when I was when I was 18, you know, I mean, I didn't have um, some like grand scheme or plan in life. It was like, I was presented an opportunity. I mean, I wasn't even old enough to get into the shows I was promoting. They were all 21 and right, up. Right. And this and this uh, um, opportunity presented itself. And I thought it, you know, I knew the sort of like L.A. landscape of bands and the Southern California landscape of bands. And in San Diego, there was nobody that was really promoting any of them or giving those bands an opportunity to play. So, um, you know, between myself and my partner, um, at the time, we just started throwing these shows, and uh, so you saw where there was this emptiness, there was this gap right. that was missing. That's right. And you said, "I'm going to fill that." Like, there, there, I guess the, if you boiled it down to the simplistic terms, it was like I realized that there was nothing or nowhere to go for people like me, and my bet was there was a lot more of people like me that right. wanted somewhere to hear new music, hear new bands, um, and you know have a good time right and you know that those early days of um you know of i mean that was when we were doing the srh productions thing i mean those early days i mean you're talking about bands from you know on the hip-hop side we were doing jurassic five black eyed peas right. kid frost um and then on the punk side you know pennywise offspring and bands like Sublime, right? And that was before a any of those bands really like meant anything. It was, you know, pre them putting out huge records and having records on the radio and all that stuff. So it was just kind of like, you know, it was it was gut level. It was like it was pre-internet, so you, it wasn't like you could go online and and see their social media following or see what kind of draw they had. It was, you know, it was back then. It was demo tapes and a mailed-in bio. And you I, I miss the days when being a fan meant something, because, like you said, let's say I find, I'll give you an example. One of my first uh, into underground hip hop was Swollen Members, right? And I'm mm, like a ninth cool. grader. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I got the Battle Axe. Oh, uh, that's anyway. tough. <laughs> so, uh, Swollen Members, and everybody's listening to like Ludacris and all this other stuff coming out, right? But I, for me, it wasn't enough. There wasn't enough hip hop in that hip, in those hip hop tracks for me to be satisfied. So I was just like, yeah, it's cool, but blah. Until somebody had me a tape from, from a Canadian hip hop group. <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> and I'm like, what is. My dude, back my, then you didn't even know there was hip hop in Canada. <laughs> he, he's like, because I, I started off like most of you know someone who's into something before you're into it. I'm at the home, and then I hear, uh, you know, like Lady Venom or whatever it was, and I'm like, yo, what, what is this? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's Canadian. You know, he was he was the only great kid, and he had, and so then my, my trajectory has just changed in life, and, and thank God for that, right? Um, but there wasn't enough. To pull to satisfy my, my needs as a hip hop head, I think in the commercial head. So when I got into the uh, or the independent underground hip hop, that's really when I knew like there was a true hip hop. Like that's there's re there's something dope here, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and it hasn't always been hip hop, but to me, I'm, I've just been drawn to it because of the poetry and the wordplay and all that stuff. Um, uh, so the 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 difference between being a fan now and being a fan then 
was that now it's simple you can entire catalogs pop up and bank mm. overnight you had to know someone who knew someone That's to true. hand you a tape for you to go play at your house and then after that it was just mind-blowing right yeah i think that's the difference i think that's the, the disconnect that we have now because it's so easy to rap now that everyone raps now and yeah. before it took a lot to be a rapper yeah i mean you had i mean back then it was you know you had to pay for real studios real everything right and it, there was a not only a cost that went with it but um also access to it so i mean like with the technology thing i think that there's it's there's goods and bads right like i think that we're flooded with a lot of music right um you know music is to me is subjective so I, you know what's bad to me might be great to somebody else right but i think to reference what you were talking about earlier right is like the the mainstream stuff that was going on back then when groups like dilated or swollen or uh, were doing their thing right is like the dilated and those swollen records are still you could put them on right now still enjoy them they're not dated they're like it 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 gives you a feeling right and it's like where if you went back to some of those mainstream records and throw them on at the, from the same time period you're like this is so 90s yeah oh yeah. this is so 90s exactly but but yeah you're right like evidence has always been ev and rock has always been rocking you can always rely on babu to do it like it's always there and that's what makes such a great hip-hop group a great hip-hop group right that like you say you can throw in their early 90s or throw in their latest 2000 stuff and you're still going to get the same feeling of legitimate and it's real that's right and the reason that i point out hip-hop and rappers in general because i feel with bands it's different and this is what i mean so i can rap and if i rap slurry okay that's his style that's how he does it that's him you can't say that's whack you don't you just don't get it. it's not meant for you kevin it's not it's not your type of music you're like okay but if i hit if i'm playing the guitar and i hit the wrong chord that's the wrong chord. There's no debating that. There's no, oh, that's how I play a D chord, bro. That's how I do it, okay? You can't judge. You can be like, yeah, you're I, I like that analogy. I've never heard that before. Well, I might it, use that. I like because that. Because there's it's actual true. instruments yeah. that need to be yeah. hit in the correct note at the right time. With hip hop, anyone can say I'm a rapper and you'd be like, oh, okay, it's cool. Because that's how he does it. Mm. He offbeat, oh, that's how he raps. That's his style. It's like, yeah, but it's whack. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that, my friend. I don't, I don't understand when we went from not being able to criticize people to not being able to criticize people and now you're the bad guy for criticizing. Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe my 20 years in the business has gives me a little bit of leverage to speak about these things or maybe the thousands of records that I own. Maybe that gets... No, it's negative. You're wrong. You're a hater nowadays, right? Mm. Back but your opinion is your opinion, right? right. Like, like, people can't fault you for your opinion. They can fault... Like, if you go over the top and go out of your way to try to bash somebody, like, that's, sure, that, that's, that, that's being right? a hater, right? Yeah, but giving yeah. your opinion on something, yeah. like... I mean, you know, there's a ton of music and current rappers out right now that sell a lot of records and a lot of concert tickets that I personally just don't get. I just don't. I have a theory <laughs> about that. And tell, tell me if I'm well. I think it's out of pure spite that some people buy their albums. And I mean this. If enough people say that that one person's whack, enough people will buy his albums just to go against what the majority think. I, I think that there's probably some truth in that. And I also think like, 
like like music is secular, right? So like the music is always a reflection of your of the times that we're mm -hmm. living in, right? So like you know we we sort of live in you know this very sort of like Kardashian-esque society right now, but I believe with like what's going on in the world right now um, and some of the trials and tribulations that we've been going through and that we're going to go through as a society. I think that when those things happen, good music and good art rise to the top, right? Because people are looking for things with more substance. You know, does that make any sense? No, so absolutely. So I, I believe that, and, and I hope this to be true, but I believe that the... Um, things that I would consider to be good and the more pure sense of the art form and um, rebel music, whether that's hip hop, punk rock or whatever it is, but music with a message and a meaning and some substance behind it is going to start to sort of come back, if that makes any sense. I, I think that it will take a voluntary almost second place to the commercial stuff because it will always there will always be those looking oh, yeah, for substance yeah, as opposed to those who are just run into the I, I, I consider it carbs and protein so there's those <laughs> that, are, that just that and this is what I tell people like you don't think eating carbs is going to affect you in the long run as opposed to here don't listen to this this is carbs here's protein bro like good for you good for your soul it makes you think it helps you kind of relate to the world a little better instead of just being something you can just bop your head to until you get you know what i'm saying yeah. i think that that will always be that there will always be those looking for that protein but the carbs are the, are the popular thing right it's it's uh it, that's what tastes good it what makes you dance it makes you feel yeah but what makes you feel and think which is I think the purpose of music in general, right? But you're 18 and you're offered this opportunity, right? What do your parents think at that point? Did they did they want you to follow a certain path or did they have something planned out no, for you? Um, not, not at all. My parents, um, super great, amazing people. Um, super blessed to have such great parents. But when I was a kid, um, uh, you know, I was a, I was a sponsored surfer when I was younger um, and you know came from like a surf skate background um, so at a very young age like you know 13 years old like you know they gave me the freedom to go do what I wanted to do so I would be gone for weeks at a time and I moved out of my parents house when I was 16 years old right so um, there was no um, you know there was no talks of like you know you have to go to college or you have to do this they you know my parents um supported me um emotionally my whole life but financially they sort of cut me off at a very young age not for any reason like i was a bad kid or anything like that maybe i was a bad kid but um that wasn't the reason they just wanted me to go and sort of fend for myself and i appreciate that very much that they did that um so um no they they you know when i was an 18 year old club promoter um you know i'd already been not living at home for two years been fending for myself and you know so they they didn't have any sort of issues with it okay so they didn't say oh you got to follow in your dad's footsteps or no. your uncle joined the business family no. but nothing like that so they gave you free reign to just do your thing yeah and they wanted you to experience real life so they said we're not going to pay your way yeah that's right they keep doing they, you they basically said i have a letter I'll give you one. go ahead they basically told me um you know look you can do whatever you want in life and just go out and live life and fend for yourself mm -hmm. and um 
and I'm very thankful that they gave me that freedom. I mean, when I was 13, 14 years old, I would, I would, you know, leave for weeks at a time, and um, you know, go traveling, surfing, skating, whatever it was, right? Um, and as long as I didn't get thrown in jail, they were cool. They were cool with it. <laughs> I like that. What about brothers and sisters? You got brothers and sisters? Um, you know, I, I don't have any blood brothers and sisters, but. Um, I, um, Munchie, who's better known to the hip hop world as Taxman from the Cottonmouth Kings, um, my parents kind of like pseudo adopted him when we were like 11 or 12 years old, and he's pretty much lived with me ever since. And in fact, he still lives with me to this day. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so you're 18, you're getting success being a, a club promoter, all that stuff. When does the the clothing come into play? Because the clothing it's, itself, and this is the one of the reasons why I'm so excited to meet you was, again, you became involuntarily or maybe voluntary at some point, a tastemaker for like Southern California. Like because of you, I think it molded and shaped Southern California music to be this, I want to say just like a machine that started developing uh, and kind of saying, oh, well, this is what's 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 hip right now. Thank you. This I is what's out that. right now. And luckily, you have good taste in music. <laughs> so it wasn't like a shitty thing like, oh, this is what I got to listen to. It was like Offspring and, and like all these things. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. But the, the, the brand itself became a lifestyle for people, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the story is like SRH originally was like a crew of guys from Mission Beach, right? And when we started doing clubs, we didn't know what to call it, right? So we just started tagging all of the clubs SRH Presents, right? Um, and at the time I was surfing for another clothing company. Um, and, you know, I was 18 years old and we were doing four or five nights a week at clubs and, um, you know, everything that comes with it, the girls, the fun, the booze, the, the good times, right? Um, you know, like showing up for some surf contest on the weekend, um, you know, when you were up till three in the morning the night before at your club, it just didn't... It didn't start to make sense anymore, right? So eventually, but you loved it, right? You had oh, I still love surfing. Oh yeah, for sure. But you, but you thought, okay, this might not be the easiest way to. I, I knew I was, I was an okay surfer, um, but I was not that good. Oh. So I was smart enough to realize that I didn't want to put all my chips in that basket, right? Mm. And we're talking about, I mean, this was twenty-five plus years ago, right? So this was before. Um, you know, people even made real money in surfing, mm -hmm. right? So, um, long story short, um, the, my clothing sponsor at the time dropped me. Mm -hmm. um, and when they dropped me, um, you know, we had already had all the clubs going and all that stuff. And I went to my partner in SRH, um, and this was 91, 92, I guess. Um, and I was like, look, I'm going to take the money that I make from the clubs and start a clothing company. Um, and I want to call it SRH because SRH was my thing. Um, and he was like, yeah, he was like, I want to do it with you. So we just started making clothes. And I mean, dude, we didn't know shit about the clothing industry. We were just two shit kids from Mission Beach who were like, just fake it till you make it. Let's figure this out. Right. And it was like <laughs> the model of my life. Yeah. And it was, it, I mean, it was funny. I mean, literally I can remember the first time 
you know, we, we, we would, at first we did like printables, right? Where we would like print hats and shirts and go to a silk screener and embroidery and, and, um, and then hand them out to all the boys at the, at the beach. Right. And in that era of, um, time, like mission Pacific beach was like a very sort of like culture driven special place. Right. So you had everything from like gangsters to the best pro skaters in the world. I mean, everybody from teams like Maple, H Street, all those early pioneers, like street skaters back in the day. I mean, they used to hang out at my house all day long, right? And then on the surfing side, we had all like the guys who were pioneering aerial surfing, right? Which was the world that I kind of came from. And so it was like this group of friends. And so we just started having all our friends wear the stuff, right? And we didn't have big money, so we couldn't like afford to pay people, but it was just like, you're part of the family, right? And so when we started SRH, it was, it was definitely that family vibe, right? And, but I mean, like I said, we didn't know anything about the clothing business. So we were handing out stuff to our friends and some of the local shops would take it in and, um, you know, it started to fly off the shelves in San Diego. And it was pretty much at that point, it was like from San Diego to like Los Angeles. Um, and then we started, you know, evolving it. Right. And we try, I mean, I can remember the first time we tried to do like a cut and sew program. Right. I drove up to LA, um, went to the garment district, brought a roll of, um, flannel and a roll of denim and, the main thing for me was I just wanted to make clothes that I wanted to wear. Yeah. Right. Like, and I, the same thing with the clubs. I figured if I wanted to wear it, hopefully there were other people out there like me. Um, and at the time, you know, there was there was a lot of shitty clothing companies out there. So, anyways, I drove up to LA. I bought a roll of flannel and a roll of um, denim, and I found a sew house in San Diego to go cut it. And they were these nice Korean ladies, but my Korean is very shitty and their English wasn't very good. So somehow it got lost in translation and they ended up making flannel shorts and denim shirts. So when you put on the shirt, it was like putting on cardboard. And when you put on the flannel shorts, it was like you fucking moved and they just ripped into a million pieces. So trust me, we took our lumps like everybody else did. But we just, we just look at the end of the day, I bet on myself and I was like, there's got to be more people like me out there that want to wear clothes that I want to wear. And that's basically how SRH started. What about the name? Because at that time it wasn't cool. Well, I don't know. I guess not. I guess more definitely now it's it's the thing to be a stoner. Like yeah. you're cool. It's acceptable. If you don't smoke, you're the because I don't smoke particularly. Yeah. Right? yeah I'm at a party. There's a blunt going blah, 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 blah. But I'm, I don't like buy weed. I don't, I don't do I just... I don't have the mentality to do that. Like I need to be up and active, right? Uh, but I am very much aware that I, when I go to like a interview or something, like, people will smoke and they'll do their thing, and then they'll offer it me to me, right? And then I'll be like, oh no, I don't smoke. Thank you, right? And then they'll give me this. Okay, like, <laughs> all right, I, I got a vibe going. I don't want you to ruin it, interview per- person. So I'm going to continue smoke. So the name Stoner's Wreaking Havoc. What did that ever? clash with business or what? Oh, because or is that why you kind of shrunk it to it's just the boom well originally like the 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 term stoners wreaking havoc i mean obviously we were so stoned we didn't realize that wreaking <laughs> is spelled with a w but um <laughs> then there was no spell check back then but anyways you we, had already made 20 hats and it, you're like oh yeah dude, we were so we, high this we were basically it was a, a, like i said it was a crew of guys and we were sitting around one night and um, you know, drinking beer, smoking weed, doing whatever the fuck we were doing. And um, 
and I and I was like, we got to name this crew, and we're the Stoners wreaking havoc, right? And from there, when it went into the clubs, right, you couldn't write Stoners wreaking havoc on a club. I mean, like you said, back then weed was still illegal cops would still bust you for it it was shunned by absolutely it was shunned by everybody right so um we would just tag everything srh right and then in the early days of the clothing company it was stoners wreaking havoc and we were um we would write that on some of the pieces but the pieces that we would write it on the stores wouldn't take it in right because we were selling to surf skate shops um you know and I kind of get it. You know, they were selling to kids and they didn't want to promote that. Um, but the logo and the SRH would fly off the shelves, right? So eventually, um, you know, through the two years or whatever leading up to that, we came up with a million different stings for SRH, right? It was SoCal's Ruthless Hardcore um, to stinky rotten hookers sorry ladies um to, i mean we came up with a million and then whatever the kids told the parents i meant because the parents are yeah. well, what is that uh sound of, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Sam, <laughs> sam robert hayes um <laughs> but um and supporting radical habits was one of those ones look that at that i like that one yeah, that one's good that kept sticking yeah. with srh so we started um blending that into it a little bit and you know srh at the end of the day it started off as stoners wreaking havoc and through the years it's morphed into both stoners wreaking havoc and supporting radical habits but it's really it's more about look when you see somebody with an srh hat or wearing an srh shirt like you know you have something in common with them right like and that doesn't necessarily have to be weed right but it, it you know that you there's a genre there that you share yeah there's there's some sort of like-minded way of thinking or something that you share with that person right and that's like the coolest thing ever is you know to think about how many people have come together at shows or just because of the clothing line or how many friendships we've made um, just from that, right? So it's just it's just that feeling of family and like looking at somebody and going, ah, I gotta be friends with this dude because he's wearing the hat, you know what I mean? So um, so yeah, it's a special feeling it's for such sure. a difficult, <clears throat> such a difficult uh, area to, to kind of be successful in a clothing line, right? Because there's thousands and everywhere yeah. else. So. It, it's not easy. It's not easy, <laughs> but if, if I'm not mistaken, it's been one of your longest and most profitable kind yeah, of adventures uh, that you've been on, right? For sure. So we've stuck with it for years. Um, you know, the the SRH part of um, you know my businesses at this point, it it's it's definitely not one of the the biggest parts of the business, but that's sort of like um, self fulfilling prophecy. So about five years ago six years ago when sort of like the um when the economy crashed oh god it was longer than that it was 2008 2009 um there was a, a bunch of things happened the economy crashed um uh, my partner in the label of suburban noise him and i had a massive falling out um and the we were srh was the number one um selling brand us and metal militia in a chain of stores called no fear and no fear um we extended them a massive credit line of about a million dollars worth of clothes and you got to remember right like we're not high finance guys and we never got investors we never sold any stock to the stock market we just 
this was our own money. We, you know, when I started SRH, I was living with six guys in a one bedroom apartment in fucking Mission Beach, full skater, crash pad, fucking punk rock, hip hop, fucking trash pad. So for us to be successful at it and actually make money, like, that was a that was a huge blessing right but when you're playing with your own money and you don't have financing right like we no fear basically filed bankruptcy and stiffed us for a million dollars and so when that happened um and then the 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 hipster thing kind of came into the world it doesn't make any sense it was just like there was a bunch of events that happened where an srh was still doing really really well um but my other businesses were doing well too. And it was like, I was blessed enough to have, we'd been at it for, you know, 20 years. And I had a real heart to heart conversation with my partner. And I was like, let's take this thing all the way back to the roots, right? Let's just like, let's get back to doing it like the old fashioned way, right? And, you know, back in the day, we would sell it out of our cars, we would sell it at clubs, we would sell it at wherever um because there just wasn't that many shops that that would take something like that but um so our way of doing that was to pull it out of all of the stores get back to the real core designs that we started off with and really just selling it on the internet and giving it to like the core like friends and people that we support whether that's musicians or you know athletes or whatever it was right so now like for me like you know srh you know it's it does well and and i'm not mad at the money but we did make a lot of money on it and i'm happy to have the freedom in life where now we are doing it um strictly not i don't want to say not for the money because that leaves a tone that we at one point we were doing it for the money but now we're just doing it completely on our own terms does that make any sense but there's stores i can walk into and buy it no not anymore we so pulled it all, we pulled it out of every purposely pulled it out of every it's single all store. website it's based. all on the web so that way <clears throat> makes sense because you guys that way get direct access to know your numbers right away right correct i mean what it does is is it 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 gives us obviously direct access but it also like it makes it um you know the margins are better right so for on the on the on the money side of things um but what it does is it gave us the freedom to not have i mean at one point with srh we probably had two hundred thousand dollars a month in overhead you know wow. what i mean yeah um, and so when you when you're doing things on that kind of a level like sometimes like look like there's jumps in the clothing business, right? And when you get to the 10 million mark, right? You have to, if you want to take it past 10 million, you have to be willing to sell to Nordstrom's, Macy's, JCPenney's and all those people, right? Because it's just a matter of how many doors you're going to open. To me, SRH was never a brand that belonged in Macy's or Nordstrom's or JCPenney's or anything like that. So I just was never willing to kind of do that, right? Like at the end of the day, like, you know, I mean, I have 10 different businesses right now, but SRH is like who I am as a human. It's your baby. Yeah, that's my baby and who I am as a human. Like that's what I still wear every day. That's what, you know, like I dress the same now as I did when I was 18 years old. That might be... Not the best thing, but it, it is what it is. Right? I, I don't know what it is. I, I'm the same way. Like uh, I'll, I'll have I have Fubu, 
in yeah. my closet yeah. and I only take it out for like special occasions because I know everyone's gonna be like bro you wearing FUBU but I rock the FUBU to like you know like a show so where like people see me and, and, and I without fail is like come on bro like what are you doing <laughs> but I just love the fashion I love the I love how it makes me feel to think about where I was when yeah, I because, first wore it because when, when I, FUBU came out that was a statement right and it was like there was a common bond with people that that were a part of that brand and the consumer right and so here's with SRH. so here's the issue with that and I, and I want to know how you relate to it right so I'm not black obviously you're not black obviously right <clears throat> but in the in the culture that we well you specifically you have a niche you have like this is for the surfer skater like it's what you know so that's mm. what you're going to put out right but to me i'm very much involved in, in an industry that's still very black dominant when it comes to every aspect of it right mm. i haven't been to the higher levels maybe then it starts to dilute to different stuff but your artists your industry people you're dealing with 90 percent are going to be black so i find it <clears throat> that it, it they it, they treat me with respect and love and all that stuff but i think it would be easier if i were to be black and access certain people or it would, it would be more comfortable around the guy doing the interviews if he was the same you know what i'm saying like that's just the things that i accept and i'm cool with it i'm fine mm. with it i get it but with you especially in the era in the 90s when you started your business and all this stuff did it ever come up the fact that you were white doing the music industry yeah a, a white boy in hip-hop in the 90s was um a surfer skater hip-hop kid from, right. from mission but, beach but it was definitely then, not uh it was definitely not the norm and you got to remember like i got into the business before um there was an eminem before there you know what i mean so it was like there was as a white boy like you know i could point it like House of Pain, which is dope, and like Cypress Hill, which was dope, right? But I mean, third bass, like you're pointing at like yeah, very but like, specific. But, yeah, but but for the most part, like it was Vanilla Ice, right? So that's why, like the the best thing about hip hop culture is, is if you keep it real, the good rises to the top, right? It always and does. So like, it always does. For me, it was like I'm just gonna be who I am and what I am. You know what I mean? And I've always been a street kid, so like I always had that aspect um, going for me. But it was just like I just gotta keep it, like you know, I just gotta keep to who I am, right? And people will respect that for that. And right? you feel that that's 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 been the way you approach this, so people pick up on that. Yeah. Okay. I, believe that. I, I find <clears throat> very important that. So, so hip hop in general is very much, it's almost, it contradicts itself in a lot of, in a lot of places, right? So in, in a, in a business where it's all about, oh, you got to be real, be real, be real, be real. There's a lot of fakeness involved 100%. in a lot of the stuff that we deal with. So I just did the same thing you did. It's like, okay, cool. I can't fix or I can't adjust my skin tone, right? So, so I'm just going to be me. I got to be me. That way people will realize, oh, okay, it's real. Even though it might not be what I'm used to or what I'm familiar with, I'm I can't hate on what he's doing because he's doing it real. He's doing it his way, <clears throat> which I think is very important to remember when you want to have any anything successful that you're putting out. If people pick up in any little bit of fakeness in you, they'll immediately just discard it, right? Yeah, especially in hip hop. Especially in hip hop. So yeah. you can't be that. But but some people do that and they're successful because there's enough people pretending like they are. That they'll, they'll they'll help them boost up and they'll promote them and they'll build and all that stuff. So how did you avoid the twists and turns of, of that? Um, I mean, for me, it was like I never, 
I respected the industry very much, right? But I never really involved myself in it too much. So for, for instance, like I always just tried to create my own world instead of like trying to um, play in some inside of somebody mm, else's. You know what sense. I mean? Yeah, so absolutely. it's like, you know, when, you know, from 92 to 96, um, you know, I was managing a bunch of bands and doing a bunch of stuff, right? But, um, and, you know, I dealt with the major labels a few times. I did a deal with Interscope Records. I did a deal with Capitol Records. Um, but the long story short, after being in a few of those meetings, right, and, like, understanding how the corporate machine worked, right? Like, look, if the corporate machine works for you, it's your best friend, right? If the big labels, I mean, this was obviously a moment in time and and it's not as relevant now but it is still relevant right but if those big machines work for you it's great as an artist right or a manager or anybody that works but 90 percent of the time it doesn't work for you right and then your career sort of gets stuck in a limbo state right so we've all heard a million stories about you know this guy was the greatest mc he you know, signed a deal with XYZ label and then they took two years to make the record and then they ended up shelving it and it never came out and the guy never sort of got his due justice or never got to see, you know, there's a million of those stories because the way that that, the big machine, at least how it was set up back in the day was, was they would sign 30 things and they had no problem losing money on 29 of them because that one that actually hit made up for all the losses on those other 29 and fueled the whole company and they made millions of dollars off that one, right? So the business model was sign everything and then really find that one that you're going to go out and promote and push and sorry to those other people who are the other 29. Me as a person with a, a good conscience, like I, I just couldn't I couldn't do that, didn't want to do that, right? So eventually, after figuring out what was sort of going on behind the scenes, I just said, fuck it, let's just make our own label. You know what I mean? You still run Suburban Noise? I still own Suburban Noise, yeah. <clears throat> what do they all have in common? All the acts that you sign to Suburban Noise? Um, well, Suburban Noise at this point is sort of a catalog label, right? Um, so the, the, the things that all of those bands had in common at the time um were sort of just that like feeling of like us against them the music you know some of the like you know a band like um head pe was completely different than a band like slain or Madchild or whatever um but they all had a certain like sort of raw energy that you know that yeah. for me it was like if i liked it i guess other people would right it doesn't have to it never had to be genre specific um but and you know a lot of the a lot of the bands at that time like they came up together everybody toured together everybody sort of like helped each other out so it was a very special moment in time with suburban noise i feel that that label has something special about it because <clears throat> i feel that a, a head fan could be if they were going to listen to hip-hop could be a match outfit 
hundred percent. You know what I'm saying? 100%. Different genres, but they would yeah. still kind of recognize the realness or the style of the music. They would kind of uh, share fans a little bit. So, which is a beauty of where I can just let's say I've never listened to Head before. I put on Head, okay, cool, and then I see that on that label is also Match Out. I'll click on that and be like, okay, I'm with. Like it makes me jump from from artist 100%. to artist. And I think it helped. It helped fans that necessarily like look if you were a head pe fan pre-suburban noise you probably you know listen to a little bit of hip-hop but didn't even you were a metal fan you know what i mean but like once they joined suburban noise it exposed their fan base to all these different rappers right and vice versa right so i think it exposed other people's music and genres of music to and open people's minds that like you don't have to just be a hip-hop kid or a rock kid or a punk kid right like you listen to all these records on the label they 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 don't sound sonically the same but they all have the same common understanding of of what they're pushing and what they're getting behind and it made people get exposed to other sort of genres other artists and everybody really had sort of that one for all all for one um mentality if that makes any sense and your solo member fans is a very special niche in hip-hop i feel and uh that's how i got introduced to a bunch of other groups was off of balance it was like well who's dilated people then i started listening who, who, yeah. who have they worked with oh j5 who's it like and it just kind of snowballs out of there right um, and I feel that a lot of the groups that are signed to Suburban now um, kind of give me a, a nostalgic feel when I listen to them. That's cool. Like, I remember when I first heard this, or <laughs> I remember when I first heard that. So there's a lot of emotional attachment from RNS fans. Yeah. From you, I can't imagine what it must be like to have, say, Conrad Keens reach the success that they've reached. And ultimately, it is because of all the work that you put on behind the scenes yeah. and not that they're no their talent is 100% theirs and they own it, the hard work and stuff but it is because they had the right management and the right team yeah to get there I mean the the Cottonmouth came into my life around 1996 or 7 right and um you know, D'Lo, at the time in the group, it was D'Lo and Saint were the MCs, and then Pac was sort of the the masked man behind the scenes, right? And as things morphed, then the, you know, the band, you know, morphed into Brad being on stage with them and Bobby coming in as the DJ, et cetera, et cetera. But I can remember the first show that I did with them, it was right when Sugar Ray um, had that song fly on the radio, and, um, We'd been we'd been doing some of their shows for years. Yeah, if yeah. you listen to actually, if you listen to the early Sugar Ray records, they're nothing like what Sugar Ray is today. They're actually really cool records. Um, but we were doing a big show with Sugar Ray, and, and I put Cottonmouth on as the opening band um, on that show. And from the moment I saw those guys hit the stage, like again, this was pre Eminem, pre anything. It was like, wow, these kids got something special. You know what I mean? And it was a it was a great journey and between Cottonmouth King, Suburban Noise, and SRH, everything that we created and that whole lifestyle and that movement at that time, it captured sort of like an essence of like the Southern California culture blending punk rock and hip hop and a feel and whether it was the fashion, the music, the weed, the lifestyle, that spread worldwide, right? And through that, through Suburban Noise and through SRH, we got to expose tons of other bands, right? From, you know, 
I mean, the list is just too long to go, but it was a, we captured a moment in time. Unfortunately, the ending of it was um, not as sort of like uh, the unfortunate thing, right? For being pre-internet, right? Is sort of like the timetables get lost to kids who are just logging in to find out, right? Because they don't know the history of what happened from, you know, pre-internet days 2000 and early right like the internet was around before 2000 but it wasn't as sort of prevalent in people's day-to-day lives or utilized for the same reasons yeah that's right i mean back then i mean the internet was for porn (laughs) well that reason has still maintained uh but it was like emails it was like group remember they had chat groups yeah yeah like you were able to talk to somebody who wasn't in the same and it was the coolest thing now you can't find a chat group i, I don't know i don't maybe it's just me but it, you, you, it, it's not prevalent it's not it's not what you, you yeah. went to the back for. in the day like like when the internet first happened right like we would have our own chat rooms and forums because that's where everybody that was into the srh lifestyle would go right and people would make friends in there and that's how because the music that we did wasn't sort of like accessible to the mainstream you weren't going to turn on the radio and hear it or you i mean certain stations would play it here and there but you weren't really seeing it that much on mtv or the radio there needed to be other ways to find these people and we did that through touring and we did that through internet chat rooms i mean people would go on there and and hang out for hours and hours and discuss like everything from weed to the lifestyle to the clothes to the bands to whatever and, and you know there's still a lot of friends again it took a lot of effort to be a fan of people yeah and that's why when you were when you were a fan you were a fan like you had the posters and yeah. like you and they meant it meant something to you to yeah be a these fan. days it's a lot more like um it's a little bit more cookie cutter right and like here one minute gone the next right people's attention spans are a lot um smaller if that makes any sense. oh 100 100 percent. okay without getting into the details of what happened because you've been asked that a million times I'm not, that's not what no, I'm i don't mind talking no i know but i i i also my, my pet peeve is having to repeat questions that you've already been asked that's so my goal is to try to find a different way around it what i want to know is we're done with that, right? The the lawsuits were were done. Oh, it's been over three years. <clears throat> what did we learn? It's funny that you mentioned that um, because this morning I actually talked to uh, I'll leave his name out, but uh, but somebody that was involved, dad, and they were just like they basically were just like that was the biggest mistake ever right and i think a lot of like look here here's what really happened right um when you have when you have a business like suburban noise right which was a thriving um label right sometimes ego and greed start of fall into things and i think um i think that when the lawsuit was filed it was also the same time where brad was going online saying just crazy shit right like and if you're a kid and you're a fan right like they like the hardcore fans know who kevin zinger is right but the secondary fan like they don't know who i am you know what i mean i never i was never one of those guys that like put myself in videos and I never I was never like clamoring for any attention right so I was always the guy behind the scenes um so like when you're 
when your favorite artist comes out and says, hey, that guy's a bad guy, like, you want to believe your favorite artist, right? And my whole thing the whole time was we built up a very special legacy and a very special thing with this. Like, whatever our differences are, let's keep it offline because that's not going to help anything. It turns out those words I wish everybody listened to and now they wish they listened to because it, 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 it turned the legacy into something that it has a really bad dark mark towards the end of it if that makes any sense it's not as it's not as like it's not it sort of put a damper on what we did create you know what i mean because at the time the suburban noise um cottonmouth head pe um moonshine bandits all those bands that came up during that time period it was a very special time and a very special legacy um and you know, literally what Brad did, um, he made, he divided people and literally said, choose my side or his side, right? My, uh, my thing the whole time was just the truth, right? Like, let's just stick to what the facts are, right? Um, and, you know, long story short, now, you know, all the people that sort of like the majority of people like saw through the bullshit, you know what I mean? But now, I mean, I still get messages all the time from kids who are like, Hey man, in the beginning, I believe Brad and I said some bad things about you on Facebook. I apologize. I know what's true now. Da, da, da. And I never faulted them back then. So I definitely don't fault them now. Um, and you know, the artists that sort of like, sided with him they all call me and they're like wow we really didn't know and we were sort of blinded and you know etc etc and we apologize and my thing was like i'm just going to continue to do the right thing by the artist continue to do the i can't control what some other human is going to say right um but i can control what i can do right where do you think it came from from brad like what what pushed him to to basically say to be honest i think that the band had a lot of internal troubles that started with the Pakalika thing, right? When they kicked Pakalika out of the group, and I don't care what anybody says, they kicked Pakalika out of the group. That broke my fucking heart. It was a fucking really sad fucking thing. And I didn't agree with it. Nobody consulted me about it. Um, and the way it went down was really, really weird, right? Um, you know, I'd been the manager for 15 years at that point. You kind of want to consult me before doing something like that, right? And for me, like, like every band has internal troubles, right? And people don't get along and blah, blah, blah. But there's two things you don't do. One thing is, is you do not, you if you make a deal, you live up to that deal. No matter how, it doesn't matter how you feel about somebody, right? You still live up to that agreement, right? That's what good business people and good humans do, right? And we, pr we prided ourselves of running our business like that, right? So you, actions speak louder than words, right? So, so um, business is business. Business Just is business, keep it that way. right? But what happened was, was the the band itself and the movement wasn't as big as it was, say, five years prior to that, right? Okay. And and when something isn't as big, the money starts to get not as much, right? right. And Brad and made a decision that he wanted to 
cut Pakalika's pay down, right? He made the the five guys in the group at that time divided the live show money equally, right? They went and said, now all of a sudden we're changing the deal. I would never stand behind that. A deal is a deal, right? And that's that's eventually why Pakalika is was not. But it can be revisited. It could just be, done properly, right? It could be revisited under the auspice of let's have a dialogue about it and yeah. try to come to an understanding, not this is how the new way is and you don't have oh, any and that's choice. It. Yeah. yeah, got it, got it. So when Pakalika left the group, I stayed around for probably a couple years afterwards. And it just, it was progressively getting worse. Look, those guys had been on the road forever with each other, um, you know, it's like having a girlfriend, right? Sometimes towards the end of the relationship, you don't even know why you're mad at her. But things any, just get out of control. Yeah, they snowball. And, yeah, and yeah. there there was a lot of that. And eventually, it just got to the point. Look, I was in there. Brad and I were partners in Suburban Noise Records, right? I owned all my other businesses. He had no stake in any of my other businesses. It got to the point for me where I was managing the Cottonmouth Kings, where it was just like. I like to be able to wake up in the morning and feel good about myself. I like to be able to sleep at night. I just didn't feel good about it anymore. Mm. So I resigned as the manager of Cottonmouth Kings, yeah. right? And I think that set off something in Brad where I became the enemy. So right? okay, that was the that was the misconception I had. You you quit first and then Correct. oh the drama came Correct. about i quit oh, and I then the drama started right right yeah. so he maybe felt hurt and i think he felt hurt it was but, a combination but at the time he was going through he was going through some personal problems of his own right and as a business partner i was very respectful of it like you know i mean in the two years leading up to the lawsuit i think brad had been to the office three times like i was in there every day like i he didn't even know who was on the label so you like, both owned <laughs> it but you managed it i did everything so what did brad do in the early days he did stuff okay in the in the he he tapped out um about five years in ago. a management type of way but he's yeah, still married in, in a day-to-day -day by level. name he All, was still owner of correct okay and in, in name and paycheck yeah <laughs> i mean he got oh, yeah, he got 50 percent of the money you know what i mean wow. so that was the that was always the confusing part to me right was like what like you're not really like he had nothing to do with signing any of the bands for like the last sort of like five years right um maybe a couple little side projects but like he was concentrating on the cottonmouth kings and doing their music but he was making money off all of the other bands so when i quit cottonmouth kings it wasn't because i was trying to do anything with suburban noise i just didn't want to manage cottonmouth kings anymore and i wanted them to go find a manager suburban noise will still be the label when you manage a band you're literally in a relationship with them right it's like getting married right you live and breathe what their reality right when you're the label you're putting out records and you're marketing and promoting records right so i just wanted to end the part where i was entrenched in the daily dramas that were the band does that make any sense no absolutely and so i resigned as the manager they owed me a bunch of money um for management commissions and i said you know what i don't even fucking care i don't care about the money i don't care about any of that i said you guys go find a new manager 
Brad, you and I, let's get together and figure out suburban noise as far as, you know, putting out Cottonmouth records and, and continuing on with the business. You still own 50%. You still get all your money. It's all good. And we were literally supposed to meet um, one evening and I got an email from him that said, um, I'm not showing up to the meeting. And like 15 minutes later, I got an email from a lawyer saying mm. that they were going to sue me for my management company, SRH, uh, my radio. I mean, everything that attached to Kevin's. Anger. And you've I mean, made it clear that a lot of these businesses didn't have anything to do with Brad. They were, they predated suburban. And, noise. and that's kind of what's I, the I, weird I, part of it, right? It was like, oh, he's just lashing out. Yeah, right, and, he's just and, lashing out. And look, like when you sue somebody in America, you can sue somebody for anything. You right. know what I mean? I kind of sue mean, when I leave. That here. doesn't mean you. <laughs> that doesn't mean you're gonna win. Yeah. You know what I mean? But you can write anything down on a piece of paper. Yeah. But then you have to prove it to right. actually win, right? right? Um, and there was just no, there was no substance, and there was no base to any of his claims, mm. right? So um, it was a diff, but it was a really difficult time for me as as a as a human, right? Because like, look, I loved all of those guys, like whatever our differences were at any given moment like they were my brothers when i call somebody a brother like i mean it yeah, you know what i mean yeah, yeah. so to have to have some of the people that were the closest to you sort of like turn against you it was a, it was a difficult time for me but at the end of the day i always knew that the facts were the facts right and it's like you know claiming that um damages against SRH. I mean, it was so ridiculous that one of the letters that I got said that um, I I physically intimidated them into wearing SRH. I mean, <laughs> I box every day, but I'm five foot eight. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, like, sure, sure. I physically intimidated them into, I mean, so I just, you know, to answer that claim, I just pulled up all the emails of yeah. them asking for clothes. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it's like. It'd be a shame you, if he didn't wear this shirt. Bro. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. You know? Yeah, sugar. Ax things happen. Accidents occur. You know? Sugar white. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So what? Okay. So anyways, to, to, to sum all that yeah. up, when when it actually when it actually went to a judge, uh, I won the case. Yes. Um and I retained all the ownership of Suburban Noise and the Masters. Um So you own it completely now. Correct. Okay. So the the case was such bullshit that um let's just put it this way. Brad was a lot better off before the case than he did at the end, right? Because he defamed my name. He, you know what I mean? Like there was like a lot of things that that went into it. Um, so I think you know he, he he would probably never admit this, but I think it was probably the one of the biggest mistakes anybody has made in the last twenty years inside of the underground music business. Mm. It was just a really it was just a bad move. <laughs> was, yeah, okay. What did the uh, and, and we'll move on. But what did what did the guys say during the the issues? Like, what did the other guys, the members of the band, say? Um, Were well, they like, "Hey, man, look, that's between y'all." Were they riding with no, him? No, or? no, no. Yeah. Um, um, Dirtball teamed up with Brad um, and definitely sided with him um which is odd because i was the one that introduced them but whatever that it was what it was um i think d sided with brad um richter did for a very short period of time and then figured out wow this is complete bullshit 
um, and same with Bobby. Um, and you know, now the band is just D. Loke and Brad. I think I don't even think they're a band anymore, to be honest with you. But um, um, over a course of time, as the facts came out, people started to realize, wait a second, this is just totally. So, have bullshit. you and Brad spoken since it's? No, and I, I still have an open invitation to him to come talk to me. That's a damn shame, right? Yeah, it's fucking terrible, man. It's it was a, it was one of those things where you're like we worked so hard and we built up something so special and for it to end like that like it was let me let me say this i sat with uh dizzy right and mm -hmm. dizzy was signed to oh, oh, oh you were you were there but you were upstairs yeah i went we went to that to that place and uh, and the one thing he kept he kept mentioning and i could see it in his eyes first he was hurt first it was hurt but here's the thing about people and i'll include myself in the circle who really don't give a shit about money Right when you have something special, you have an R, you're putting out something. The legacy should always be more important than the money. That's what bothered him above everything. He's like, legacy, bro. Look, when think we, about what Funk Volume has been able to accomplish by ourselves. Yeah. You're ruining this over whatever amount of money. Put a number on it. That doesn't equate, or it's not going to give it any value compared to what the legacy in the future. I think people with vision see the see. In the future, more than the people see now, the present, they want to get paid now, they want to get, they don't understand that. What about legacy? What about what you're leaving? What about what you're uh, contributing? What about that part, right? When you when you die, you don't get to take all of the houses, the cars, the money, or none of that shit with you. But the only thing you do is leave a legacy behind. And that was always, I mean, I sent multiple messages to Brad, like, let's talk about this. This is a legacy. Like, what, this is... Like, I, I'm good at, like, understanding what's going to come from things, right? And I just knew from the onset of the of what he was doing, because especially because he was trying to make it very public, right? I thought one of the tactics of him, like, sort of putting me on blast on the internet was to try to make it so that I would settle the case and give him money. Does that make any sense? Oh, and he thinks it might give him credibility? No, I don't and think push, it was, And push pressure you a little bit into. I, I think it was more of like a mental strategy, a little bit. Like, oh, he was gonna pressure you into just saying, "All right, fuck it." Was yeah. there a set figure that he wanted? Mm -hmm. And 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 don't I, I don't, uh, 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 I, don't no, I want to know what it is, but I'm saying it's all. Uh, I mean, people can, people can access. I mean, lo every lawsuit is still online. Okay. Like anybody can. So access how much did he want? I, I think the originally it was like. I think it was like 30 something million and then it went to 50 i mean it was it was fucking and awesome. for you it's chump change of course right but no. you're like but you're like you know out of pure principle i'm not gonna pay you bro Look, like i'm not gonna do here, it here here's the bottom line if i owed my worst million. enemy five dollars <laughs> and they moved to japan yeah i would make sure that they got that five dollars not fair. because of them but yeah. because of me mm. right if somebody sues me for something that I did not do, I would spend more money to fight the lawsuit to come out right than settle it. Character. Character is more important. Than I'm that. with you on that. Yeah. that and, and I think we walk a tight tight line as men, just as, just as men every day on a character, right? Because there's things that will make life easier, yes, but I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to lose my character, my persona. I want to look myself in the mirror in the morning and be 100%. like, at least I might be broke, bro, but at least I'm broke because I'm following my dreams. I'm betting on myself. I'm not 100%. willing to sacrifice. 100%. Um, 
so yeah, so that, that so bringing back that's what Disney said it was basically uh, you know the legacy is what what he's really tarnishing here over money. It's not worth it to me. Yeah, he wasn't. I'm not saying he was bitter because he wasn't bitter. He just understood. He learned from it. He said he's like, I get it. I understand. There's some people you can trust. Some people you can't. Some people you think you can, and you can't always depend on them. It, it, it's that. But overall, what would you say that Kevin Zinger learned out of the whole equation? Do we approach business different now? No, I don't actually. I, I pretty much what I learned out of it was people can change, mm. and I can't. There's nothing that I can do about that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like even when like the even when the Hobson Dame thing, like I know Dame. You know what I mean? And Hobson, I mean, he was in. I used to try to help him out when he was signed to Tamika's label way back in the day. Ruthless. Yeah, he wow. was signed to Ruthless. Yeah, I remember. And that. he was trying to, you know, whatever was going on there. But he used to come into the office, and I, I you know, a big fan of Hobson. I think he's a great artist. Um, but when the when the Dame and Hobson thing happened, you know, I literally I talked to Dame, and I was like, man, I, I, I went through this. Now I don't know what their business dealings are, and that's none of my business, right? But bringing the business side of things into a public, um forum never ends mm. up well yeah it never ends up well but it seems to be the the chosen way for certain people to kind of justify what they're doing i think and i think there is something to saying hey everybody he's the bad guy he's a bad guy i'm gonna say so loud so people will believe me yeah even though the bad guy might be like bro i got no idea what you're talking about yeah just repeating it over and over again people that don't know kevin think okay well then i'm gonna side with the group that i do know yeah that's and, right and, that, and that's the way yeah. it happens and you can't fault those kids i mean look if if you kind of fault them a little bit i i, I fault them there's still like the every once in a while you'll get some kid that like either a doesn't want to believe everything that has come out since. Oh, or, I see the fans. Or, you're talking about the fans. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and every once in a while, you know, you I'll see something like, "Oh, yeah, that guy ripped off the Godmel Kings." I'm yeah. like, "Well, maybe you should look up the paperwork and actually see what happened because it's <laughs> yeah. actually the opposite." But have you had any legal issues before with anybody else on never. that? And after you, never. so this is the one fluke. And I could see how you'd be like, "Look, man." Never. That's kind of a little bit on him. That's like, why. I, that's I, why I fucking fought so hard. You know what I mean. But I left my part out of the public thing. You know what I mean. I just fought As it in the should. court. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I just I, I made one statement because there were some things that were said that needed to be addressed. But other than that, I was like, I'm just gonna. Be You've always court. been very open about it. Yeah. Always very open about it. all the research that I've done before I got here. You were always very open. You're like, look, man, you turn the computer around. You're like, here it is. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not lying. I'm yeah. not bullshitting you. Yeah. And that's how I knew, okay, well, Kevin's obviously, yeah. I could see you. I could see you go there. So I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But that's life. You but you live, came you out of it and yeah. you're still doing your thing. Yeah. And so like on the suburban noise thing, when that, when that, when the lawsuit was over, right, like I retained, um, you know, 90% of the catalog and I had a life decision to make. It was like, do I continue on with suburban noise right now? Meaning like signing new acts and doing all that kind of thing with that label. Or do I concentrate on my other businesses? And, um, and at the time it was like, it's not all about the money for me. Right. So it was like the legacy had been tarnished 
I didn't want to put any artist in the position of like having to answer questions on my behalf or, you know what I mean? It was still very sort of raw and fresh. Um, so I made a decision of like, look, I'm just going to run Suburban Noise as a catalog label and be very proud of that moment in mm. time, right? And, you know, I partnered up with Madchild on the Battle Axe thing and, um, you know, uh, we started a few other different labels, right? And And sort of that's what we do with like the newer bands that we sign. And like, you know, like you brought up Dizzy, right? Like Dizzy puts his own records out now. Um independently so like you know i jumped in and like helped him set up his whole situation and set up his record and same thing with like everlast and people like that right so um i'm still very active in the record label side of things but i just felt that it was time for suburban noise you know maybe one day if if it was the right thing i would bring it back but it would have to be something that was finished off the legacy in the right way. I see. Sense. It's not about just going out and signing bands to make money. Do we venture out to new things now? To like different new media? There's a lot of different new media. I mean, I'm proof of that. Yeah. That you can, um, you know. Yeah. So, I, I mean, like one of the things that I've been concentrating a lot, um, you know, so my management company, I mean, we do, you know, House of Pain, Everlast, Dizzy Wright, Dilated Peoples, Evidence, DJ Mugs, all of that stuff underneath the management umbrella. Um, And then we have multiple different labels that we have. Um, And then um, I don't know how into street art or not you are, but um, a a friend of mine named Risk, who's probably the premier OG sort of graffiti artist from um, the West Coast, right? Um, I was sitting, I was doing a CD release party for Slain. Um, The new one? No, it, this was four years ago, mm. five years ago. Uh, it was the King of Everything Else record. Yeah, that's um, a great album. And Riss showed up, and Risk and I had known each other for 20 years. When I started SRH, he had a company called Third Rail, and we were sort of like at the trade shows back then. It was called the ASR trade show. It was before Agenda. We were kind of like the black sheep of the trade shows. Mm. We were kind of like the kids who were doing our own thing, right? So you'd have like these big companies like – you know, Quicksilver, whatever it was, and then there'd be SRH and Third Rail. So Kelly and I came from a place of like, you know, let's not compete against each other. There's plenty of room for somebody to wear a Third Rail hat and SRH shirt. Let's yeah. just go have a couple beers and have fun with this. No doubt. Yeah. So we had a relationship for, for you know twenty plus years, and I was sitting in a booth at a at Slain CD release show. And I was like, damn, Holmes, you fucking like legitimately blew up. Like, I, I don't know what I was watching. I think it was like Ion LA or something. And they were like interviewing him and shit. And he was like, yeah, man. He's like, I really need a manager. Would you do it? And I was like, I thought about it for a minute. And I was like, look, man, we've been friends for 20 years. And like I said earlier, when you manage somebody, it's a very special kind of um, relationship. Um so I wanted to make sure that there was a lot of clarity there because he was obviously one of my good friends. Um, but I was like, yeah, man, let's link up and have a couple conversations and figure it out and make sure this is the right thing for both of us. You know what I mean? Um, long story short, those conversations happened and we started managing risk. And, you know, you're, you're at my house. So you, as you can see around, I, I collect art like girls collect shoes. Um, so I've always been a huge yeah. fan of art. Uh-huh. Um, but sort of... Through Risk, that was kind of like one of my segues into like the street art world. And him and I opened a gallery called Buckshot. 
Um, and now, you know, now we work with probably 30 to 40 street artists and do everything from like selling fine art for them to doing campaigns with commercial work to we're opening a hotel in downtown called the Mayfair. And in cool. each floor, there's a different um, artist stuff in each floor. So yeah. So get, you, you're venturing into different aspects of, of yeah. Art. I mean, my thing is, is like everything ties street art, fashion, music, it all ties oh, yeah. together. It's all culture. Yeah. So do you know who Banksy is? Of course. I, yes. <laughs> you know who the person Banksy is. One of the greatest mysteries of our generation. You you have the answer to Banksy. Something like that. Oh, <laughs> Kevin Singer is Banksy. I'll put it. I'm gonna way. I'm gonna say Kevin Singer is Banksy. I produced right a movie last year called Saving Banksy. Great it's movie. On, thank you. Absolutely Appreciate great. It. Thank you. Um, and it's on Netflix now. Um, and Banksy to me um is one of the most prolific artist to come around in a long time and he truly has something to say and the autonomy that he and his team um created and people not knowing who he or she is um is adds to that whole thing so um I he or nothing. she now you now you're messing with me now you're just <laughs> fucking with me because i heard he got arrested like last week and it was like this tall white guy and i'm like well that would make sense but banksy's too smart to get caught i feel he's been around long enough to dodge those bullets already right that's what's up that's cool man all right oh I see kevin singer knows banksy they're gonna have people tweeting you and bugging you now for the answer for that um before we before we move on, <clears throat> there's a couple of different segments that I like to kind of go through with the artist. Well, first, I need your top five musical influences of all time. NWA, Public Enemy, Black Flag, Pennywise, Sublime. Those are your personal influences. Yeah, I like that. Those are good. I like that. that's solid. Give me your bottom five though. I need your bottom the, five. The five worst. That you just like you don't get. I don't understand. Like oh. you just never liked. Like just your bottom five. Personal bottom five. God, I could go on forever on that one. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I currently don't understand the things like Little Uzi Vert or. I mean, I, I don't even know. How hey man, that's how games. he does it. Yeah. Okay, that's how he does it. Uh, you're hate. You're being a hater right now. Okay, <laughs> that's how he does it. You cannot judge the man. Okay, I'm I'm just giving my personal opinion. Okay. Um, the five worst. Little Uzi. Good God. That's that's a hard one. I really have to think of that for a minute. It's funny. I mean, there's the there's like the there's like the Milli Vanillis of the world that are like super obvious, but like the sad thing for for stuff like that and for any artist, right, is is like, you know, people put their heart and souls into their music, right, and clamor for any sort of like exposure or success, and then you get a band like Milli Vanilli who dances around and doesn't even sing their songs or do anything and all of a sudden they have the number one hit in the country to find out later it wasn't actually them singing but you know i there's not a shred of respect that i can give to anything like that i'm with you i'm yeah. with you like that. okay well we'll leave it at there i, I respect that that makes sense to me um 
Before we do this final segment, one question for you. What do you think of the biggest misconception the artists now have when we're talking about getting signed or looking for a deal or all that kind of stuff from your perspective? What do you think the biggest misconceptions that they have? I think that, I think the biggest misconceptions with, with artists a lot of times is, is like, because it's their life's work that they put into something, they all of a sudden, um, put a misconception of greatness on it right and so you you think it's good <laughs> it's so funny because i sat with ritz the other day right and uh, we're at strange music in hollywood and he's like oh yeah, oh yeah i've been rapping forever bro you know i had deals in like 92 or something i wasn't good enough to get a deal obviously i didn't realize that at the time but i was out there shopping my stuff right and like afterwards when i was editing and thinking i'm thinking about it i'm like wow he's like really being honest right now because he goes kind of sucked a little bit but i at least kept going and now i don't suck right yeah, yeah, yeah. but you're so attached to your art or whatever your your painting or whatever that you think it's good or you you're like well why wouldn't anyone like this because I work so hard at it and and that that that's good to hear and I respect Ritz very much for for hearing that um, but I think like coming from hip hop culture right it's a very braggadocious sort of like look at me look at me right which is which I understand um, but like. For me, like I come from an era of like a little bit of self-deprecation, right? And don't take yourself so seriously. So like mm. it's hard sometimes to sit in meetings, right? Where you're like, you, you listen to, a, a, let's just say XYZ rapper or kid or whatever it is. And he's like, I've got the fire, man. This is the dopest shit since, you know, whatever they think was the last dopest shit. And you're like... Like you, you, you don't really want to say that. You want to sure. like you, you let 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 fans say that. You know what I mean? Like working with guys like Evidence, like you know, he he's he's the kind of person that will he he goes through the process of making a record, which I respect very much, right? And he's not trying to rush anything out, and he's his own worst critic. Like he'll play me records that I think are amazing, and he'll be like, "Yeah, that's not going to make the record," and I'm like. Okay, but he has a process of getting to where he goes to make great, timeless, legendary music that will stand the test of time. And I think that a lot of um, young rappers could learn something by going through the process. Not everything that you do is fire. Not everything that you do is the greatest thing that's ever come out. Like come into it with a little bit of humbleness. So act accordingly. Act accordingly. Let mm. other people tell you it's the greatest mm. thing. You don't have to tell me. I you like know that. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But but I, I and I feel that ego has a lot to do with success, right? Because okay, we all confidence need, does. We all need okay confidence. Maybe and ego that's are, the confidence word. and ego are different because we need that as MCs, yeah. as performers, entertainers. 100%. You need that to be able to say, yeah. you know, what, I'm not George anymore. I'm concept now. Yeah. I'm going to introduce myself to complete strangers. And, like you need that, right? And you also 100%. need it to. It helps you. It helps your drive, your development, your build, and all that stuff, right? Confi but, confidence is Jay Z, right? Ego gone wrong is Donald Trump. Does that make sense? Like, sure. Yeah, there's a big difference, right? Like, yeah. Jay-Z had confidence in himself and in his music, and he created something that was amazing, right? Yeah. Um, Donald Trump only wants to hear about Donald Trump, and his ego gets in the way of rational decisions or anything, right? Well, that's what happens when you go 40 years without being checked. Yeah, because there's not in the last 40 years, no one's has ever checked Donald Trump and told him, hey, you're talking too loud. 
or hey that's not the right thing no one has ever no one said this to this man so of that ego it's just been fed and it hasn't been checked so now when he's running for president he'll say the most crazy outlandish things and again he's not getting checked why would why would he be any different why would it stop him yeah, from saying and doing these ugly things that he does right yeah um but it is it, that's a good point to see ego and confidence there's i like a big that difference. yeah no doubt you have confidence Kevin Zinger yeah. has confidence in what he does. I have confidence in what I do, and I try to check my ego every day. Mm, right. This is uh, this is something I like to call twelve rounds. So the way it works is I'm going to ask you twelve questions, and it's a signature of the show. Everyone gets asked the same twelve questions. Uh, I'm going to ask you twelve questions, each more difficult than the last. If you answer all twelve questions honestly, you're the champion. Walk away with the belt. Epic. Okay. <laughs> if you cannot answer the question or you will not answer the question, you will mm -hmm. be knocked out. I'm the champion. I'm trying to find it. And I get, and I, I'm trying, there's usually some, I think, well, that's my lighter, huh? <laughs> I was going to say, I get that oh, lighter. No, okay. okay, there you go. I get my lighter back. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, you, I don't know. We'll figure something out. You give me a new shirt. Give me one of those shirts. Perfect. You willing to play 12 rounds, Kevin? Right, let's go. Round number one. Now, I'm going to be looking at my phone just because I don't want to mess up the rounds, but I'm, I'm fully here, okay? It's all good. Round number one. What is your favorite part about your craft? Seeing somebody's career become successful because I added to it. Mm, you having something to do with somebody else's success. Correct. You, you enjoy that feeling. Yes. It's got to be a sense of pride behind it. And all Absolutely. That like that. Round number two, what is your least favorite part about your craft? Dealing with people who are less than truthful. But everyone's a little least than, than truthful, right? In the music business, it's personified and amplified. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Round number three, what are you most proud of? Recently, probably the Saving Banksy movie, but as a whole, what we created with SRH. Round number four, what are you least proud of? The time period that... Uh, ended suburban noise with mm. brad yeah but it sounds a lot more like you were reacting oh 100 the, the reason i'm the least proud of it is just because i do believe that it sort of tarnished a really good legacy mm -hmm. i respect that round number five if you could collaborate with anyone dead or alive who would it be If I win, you got to tell me who Banksy is. <laughs> uh, then I got to purposely lose. Um, <laughs> if I could collaborate with anyone, who would it be? I was fortunate enough to work with Chuck D when I signed the X Clan, so that was cool. That was a check off the list. Uh, Easy E. Easy E. Easy E. I thought Easy was. I mean, obviously he was dope, but he he brought. The streets, the bit, look, I call it being bilingual, right? And I think that's part of my success is I can talk street talk and talk corporate talk, right? So it's kind of being bilingual. And yeah. I think Easy e personified that. Really? Yeah. I like that. I like that one. Round number six, what is your biggest fear? Dying of lung cancer. <laughs> As I smoke another cigarette. Even though you've smoked <laughs> literally four cigarettes in the last hour that we've been sitting here. And you don't even smoke all of it. Like you're smoking like to the half and then you just dump it. That, that's my way of cutting down. It, 
you still smoke a pack, just not a full pack. That's right. I got it. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. So dying of lung cancer yeah, is really your biggest fear. I guess so. Hey, you're a man facing no, my, your fears. Dude, I like that. To be honest, like uh, that, that was kind of a joke. My my biggest fear is what's going on in the world right now. It's fucking terrifying. It's I, I'm a news junkie terrifying. and I watch the news um, religiously. And it's not that I believe everything that's on the news and I try to stay well-rounded and watch all the different channels and opinions and views. But I think that the divide that's going through our country right now and the lack of leadership from the top down yeah. is going to um, create a world that we're not so proud of for years and years to come. And it's not that I'm worried about myself because I don't have kids or a wife or anything like that, but I'm worried for my granddaughter. I mean, my goddaughters, my friends, kids, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm super skeptical on the world that we're leaving behind. Let me say this. Um, I'm glad that he ran for president. I'm glad that he won. And the reason I'm glad that he won is because it's no longer, uh, uh, it's no longer it's whispered racism hate all that. it's no longer that when it was yeah. for those eight years that we had the black president where you couldn't say anything because you were obvious right now it's like they, they, they don't walk around with the with the with the sheets on their head anymore they're like just eight o'clock at night on a friday just parades of them and they're showing you like hey we're no we're no longer afraid because the guy on top shares our belief so why would we be behind behind sheets and all this stuff right well i, I think that i think that trump, that's the extreme trump it, validates those people exactly right yeah. which which you know i was with uh ross mg yesterday we managed long beach dub all stars and he was in sublime a lot and him and i talk politics quite a bit and um he was saying um you know, when the whole Trump thing came up um, and Trump got elected, he was like, this is going to be a good thing because it's going to create the civil unrest for America to fix itself. Yesterday, we were talking about it a little bit, and I think he still shares the same opinion. I don't share that opinion. Um, I think it's just a bad thing. But, you know, there's that side, too. Sometimes you have to go to one polar extreme and find the worst in everybody for the world to recorrect itself and the best to come out my problem with it is is i think that um i think that ignorance is just rising to the top right now and i think that um it's going to be a long time before we can fix something here's the thing though i feel it's unsustainable you you can't he he he, this man is not going to be able to keep this up for four years he won the presidency (laughs) He, he did but the presidency again is one year right it's one year of going back rotating before he was Donald Trump, the politician, he was Donald Trump, the dude for years, right? right? And that's a different kind of arena that he's in. I honestly feel that it's good that he won. It's good that, that this is going on because when he gets impeached, when he gets fired, it's going to show everyone you cannot. This is not acceptable. There's going to be a level. There has to be a point where the Republican Party goes, we can't take it. Like, I don't know what it'll be. He'll have to fucking kick a baby or something where they'll be like, yo, he's going to drop an N-bomb at some point. There's going to be a leak tape. There's going to be proven Russian collusion. Something's going to happen where he's going to be removed. And now everybody else can be like, fuck you guys. We're better than this. I honestly truly want to believe and feel that we're better than this. And one day we're going to realize it. That's my hopes and dreams. I, I, I as a veteran, that, as correct. an American, I'm just like, yo. I hope you're correct. Thank you for your service, by the way. Yeah. I hope you're correct. Um, unfortunately, when Trump gets impeached, we get Mike Pence, right? And he doesn't really sort of, he does a better job of, of covering up yeah, his... Yeah. Um, yeah, but think 
about this though. Pence can't be like, let's build a wall. Let's, he's he's gonna be he's gonna have to stay so far away from everything that Trump made, everything that Trump did and said, because we're not gonna want Trump number two. People are gonna be out for blood. They're not gonna let him get away with let's build a wall. But the re- the most retarded reasoning to keeping people out, let's build a wall. Like, yeah. Come on, like he's not gonna be able to say those things. He's not Trump, so he's gonna be very much in check. For the, I, that's I, all I'm I hope again so. <laughs> I, that's all I hope uh, what, what round were we on what was that round number six biggest fear yes yes dying of lung cancer somehow led to Trump uh, <laughs> round number seven they're kind of in the same category uh, look it's cancerous right malignant I'm getting uh, who would you take a bullet for for round number seven um, my partner Ivory Daniel um, and anybody in my family you take a bullet for them. Yeah. I like that. Round number eight, who would you let that bullet hit? Now I'm Trump. Not s- <laughs> Disclaimer. I'm not saying Kevin Zinger shoots anyone. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a bullet flying through the sky. He's just not going to sweat it. If dude gets hit. Who would, who would you let that bullet? Just Donald Trump. <laughs> Headshot. What are we talking about? Dome shot arm. What are we? Oh, I'd, I'd go straight for the fucking straight for the middle of the eyes could take that motherfucker out i i, I would just go like crotch shot because that way he'll have to live with it i know he's I think that would be like challenging because my understanding is that the guy has a super small penis which makes up which makes a lot of sense to me because his ego is so fucking big so well you know uh, hitler had a micro penis also it's yeah, like a medical proof i would put i would put them pretty f- close together <laughs> pretty close just a mustache it's really throwing him up uh trump wow okay uh round number nine who would you never work with like ever work with uh brad x <laughs> you would never. <laughs> no look I, I i don't want to say never um who would i never work with that's interesting though that that was your first you gotta it's kind of it's gotta mean something i would never yeah i'll, I'll leave it at brad x there, there was a certain time, look, here's the analogy, right? I always trip out on people that get a divorce, right? And then all of a sudden they hate their ex-wife or they hate, hate their ex-husband, right? And I'm a big fan of thinking there was a time in your life where you loved, appreciated, respected, and wanted to be with that human, right? So... If the last two years of a ten-year relationship were shitty, in retrospect, focus in on the on the eight years, not the two years, right? And that that hopefully will help eliminate some of the hate that people have in their hearts for exes, right? So, trying to practice what you preach, I would apply the same thing with Brad, right? Because um, there was a time period where. Um, I would have took a bullet for the guy, literally. Um, and I don't know what happened to him mentally or what happened to him um, for him to get to the place that he got to, but I would never work with that person again. But if he had some self-realization um, and I would consider for the legacy and for the fan base doing something with the Cottonmouth Kings in the context of it being for the greater good of the legacy and the fans. Does that make sense? I respect that. No, I understand it. If you saw true and honest Correct. remorse Correct. and regret and Correct. he came to you and he said, hey, let us, you would do, okay. Yep. All right. I'm a forgiving person. So then you would work with him. Who would you never 
work with. Are we still keeping it? You're still going to keep that answer for now? I mean, I'm saying Lil Uzi comes to you and goes, oh, Kevin Zinger, I need you to manage me. Pat, pass. You're the, you're the, but look, you don't understand. Look, I got NWA back. I got them back together. We're going to do an album. Lil Uzi and <laughs> Jesus Christ. And NWA together. We're going to do it. We need Kevin Zinger to manage us. I is going to do that. But um, on the, on the, on the music tip, um, who would I work with? The 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 catch me outside girl comes. Never work. Kevin Singer. That. No. I need you to no. manage me. I'm in Cali I, now. I, I, they're, they're, yeah, I have a ton of those kind of opportunities that come up to me, and I just pass respectfully pass. But yeah. Pass. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, those kind of things have come. That that this is the who's hot right now. This kick. Oh yeah. And you're just time. like no. Yes. Mm. I respect that, and I'm gonna tell you something, uh, which is weird. I it's feel it's not all about the money. It's not all about And that's what people need to keep in mind, right? I feel I'm Kevin Zinger uh, reincarnated, even though Kevin Zinger is still alive. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Round number nine, who would you never work with? Who? uh, Round number 10, last three. You're doing pretty good. Round number 10, do you believe in God? I will. in In the version of God that exists in books, no. Um so I don't want to get too deep and nobody really probably gives a shit about my um, religious or spiritual outlook, but I will. Um, I don't know. You're pretty zoned together. Uh, thank you. And you pretty, you got a good understanding of how to live. I feel people go their whole lives without figuring out how to live. Thank you. And I it seems you, you've got a good sense of it. There's got to be some inner peace. Yeah. That you adhere so, to or some. Totally. I, and I appreciate that. Um, so like a lot of young men um, in the world, right? You're sort of looking for um, the meaning of life or the bigger sort of thing out there, right? And everybody sort of goes, through, well, I went through it somewhere around 30 years old, I guess. And so what I did was, was I started reading a lot of religious books, philosophy, um, started reading books on um, science and near-death experiences. And it was my way of trying to find out the meaning of life or the path for myself on a sort of like a spiritual side. And what I did was, was I sort of made, um, I was, I was reading this book about near-death experiences, right? And there's two things that are super consistent on near-death experiences. One is, is all the sort of, um, all the people say they see two things. One is the light, and then the other, they see their life flash before their eyes, right? So I took that fact of you see the, your life flash before your eyes, and, uh, and I applied it into my own personal religion, and it goes something like this. If the, the moment you die, your life flashes before your eyes, which is obviously scientifically backed up. You were an asshole, a prick, cheated people, were a thief, a fucking bad person, didn't help people, blah, 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 blah. All the bad things in life. And that's all that flashes before your eyes. And your last moment in time and um, your last moment of um, cognitive thinking on this planet is you realizing that you were a fucking prick, then that is hell. If your life flashes before your eyes and you were a good person, you helped your family and friends, you did the right thing, you tried your best to always be morally conscious and upstanding, and that flashes before your eyes, 
That's my version of heaven. So I boiled down religion to a very simplistic term of being able to do the right thing on a day-to-day basis, but also with a little bit of scientific understanding behind it. That's deep. Yeah. Because I, the biggest thing I figured out from reading all those books is I'm never going to be able to figure it out. So I took that and then applied it to my own sort of personal Which is the smartest uh, conclusion you can come to is like, a wise man knows he knows nothing, That's right? True. So, and you can study it and debate it and go to Indochina, climb the biggest mountain, ask the wisest man, and he doesn't know anything more about it than you do. Yeah, It's really a self-fulfilling thing and you have to kind of come to terms with it. I like that. I'm with you. Maybe it's you repeating your life over and over again. If you're an asshole, I mean, that's negative and Yeah, I mean, imagine the last moment of your life and you realize you cheated all your friends. You were a fucking dick. You didn't do the right thing. Like your last moment of time on this planet and this special thing called life that you've been given, you realize that you wasted it. That's got to be your own personal hell, right? Or So it, does that make you your own god? I don't even put God into it. You have no, no, no. The reason I, I say God, because God to me could be, you know, a, cl- a guy in the clouds, like a physical being that's actually mm-hmm. controlling and maneuvering. Some people consider God to be love, to just be the universe, yeah. the energy, that kind of stuff, you know? I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. There's two sides to every story, and somewhere in the middle there's the truth. But yeah, the um, I I respect all religions, and even though I personally don't, believe in them um that doesn't make me right and them wrong understand i like that round 11 last two what is your biggest insecurity what are you most insecure about Hmm. i'm short (laughs) how dare you i'm the same as we're five eight come on now It's it's not too bad um my biggest insecurity would probably um, could be the your fear. Height. It's fine. No, no, no. I think it. I think it's. I think it, it's not my height. I'm very comfortable with being short. Um, it makes for easy plane rides because you can just kick it. Um, <laughs> my biggest insecurity, uh, and I don't know if it's an insecurity, but it's almost the fear of missing out, right? And I think I suffered from more of that. Um, in my younger days, right? Uh, but now I'm a little bit more at peace with it. But I think it's like um, always worried that you're missing out on something, right? And I've lived a pretty rich, full life. So that's not a good... Um, you still do that? I think that I think I still kind of battle it, yeah. But I have it a lot more in check now. Mm, yeah, I like that. Well, <clears throat> thank you for having me over. Yeah, no it's problem. absolutely gorgeous. It was a pleasure. As a beautiful house, beautiful yeah. day out here. Uh, it was an honor meeting you, and I want to thank you for everything you did. Because I'm, I'm Orange County kid, I'm, I was subjected to everything that you put out, everything that you did out. I mean, I, I'm the kid you were talking to. You know, that's I mean? right, I'm, man. I'm, I'm that guy. The, from everything from the music to the clothing to everything that you've put out, dude. Even the Banksy thing, dude. That's amazing that you got that in depth with it and you created it's your baby and all that stuff. So thank you, Kevin, for everything you've done. Thank for you for my, having me. I appreciate the honor of being on your show, man. Absolutely. Cool. Last and final round, round 12. Kevin Zinger, I need to know why. Why what? Why? why I need not? to know your why. What's your why, Kevin? Why? Because I, because I can and I think everybody else can. Like, like I said earlier, 
you're only given a moment of time on this planet. So you got to make the most of it. So, you know, whether it's management companies, record labels, clothing companies, movies, whatever it was, my answer to why would always be why not? Why, why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? Mm. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, but it's, it's the process of getting there. That's the, uh, that's the journey. Somebody, uh, <clears throat> I'm struggling. I'm arguing with somebody. I'm like, yo, I'm never going to get there. I'm never going to get there. And all this stuff. And he goes, stop. He goes, you, know, you might know him as Ariano. He's a great artist, Ariano. And he goes, um, it's the journey, not the destination. That's right. Wise words. And I was stressing myself out again. And then I heard his voice again. It's like, it's the journey, not the day. Don't worry about it. If you're meant to get there, you'll get there. Enjoy these these steps, these arguments, right? And you're absolutely Wise right. Words. That's just the, the wisest words anyone can say. So thank you again yeah, for having me over. Thank you. So for Kevin Zinger, for uh, Orange County, for LA County, for real music, real hip hop, real, just for reality everywhere, man. So this is Concept 714 asking you, demanding that you help us. Wake the flock up. Thank you, thank you. Now tuned into the Wake the Flock Up Network.